Good evening. I have the lovely Brian with me tonight. Hi, Brian. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I'm Brian Caves, writing as Brian W. Caves. Um, I'm the tender age of 65. I've been writing for a few years, but uh, I've also I'm also a musician and I've been playing guitar and singing since I was 14 when I discovered Jimi Hendrix. And uh, having been classically trained on the clarinet, I promptly put that down and picked up the guitar. Some say I should have stuck to the clarinet, but there we go. And I've been playing ever since, and I've trod the boards with a million different musicians, some of the finest on the circuit. Very honoured to have had that relation, or still have those relationships. Um, yeah, main musical taste, in case anybody's interested, tends to be blues, funk, rock, fusion, a bit of heavy metal, a bit of prog rock, and a bit of Americana. So anything apart from folk, really, I think. But there we go. Oh, yeah, opera's also pretty good. Um, yes, I've been writing a few years. Um I wrote my first book many, many years ago and actually got accepted by a publisher, one of the top publishers in the country who handles the um, Jack Reacher books, uh, various other people, Chris Carter. Uh, and But that's now. But back then, they signed me at the same time as, uh, excuse me, as the, as the guy who wrote Every Dead Thing. His name completely escapes me at this moment. Um, and also, the, at the first time, the first Jack Reacher book. And uh, I wrote this book. Uh, it was based in the Deep South um, during segregation. It was a crime novel, and they loved it. We spent a year working on it and edited it, editing it and polishing it, and God knows what else. Um, and sent it off to several publishers who sadly all passed on it. So that was my first foray many, many years ago into, into the publishing world. And things just fell by the wayside. You know, you move jobs, you do things, you have kids, uh, you get divorced, <laughs> all sorts of things get in the way. Rock and roll gets in the way. Uh, attempting to be um, a rock god gets and failing miserably gets in the way uh, but I took that novel read through it again a few years back about five years back and thought what an utter load of rubbish it was and how the hell did it even get accepted by this agent but I rewrote it completely uh, I say completely I kept the same themes deep south of Georgia early 60s crime theme Missing black children, that sort of stuff. And uh, out came a long way from home. So that's where I am at the moment. I'm living in Burton Latimer, semi-rural semi Northamptonshire. And I've been writing properly now for about five years. And music has been put on hold through COVID and adopting a dog that needs all my attention in his latter years and won't lose sight of me anywhere. So it's a bit difficult to take him on the road um, but there you are that's me single man and uh, oh yeah my daughter lives here too um, so yeah we have a nice home and a nice life out here in Northamptonshire so that's a bit about me but I was I was brought up in in Bedford uh, that was my hometown then moved to Milton Keynes after I got married then Northampton Wellingborough here really Someone from my part of the world for a change. I love it. <laughs> Usually everyone's like 100 miles up north. Everyone kind That's of right. up north. Everyone does. Yeah, <laughs> literally, nearly. <laughs> if I want to go see him, I have to travel about three or four hours at least, if not yeah. more. Mm. Yeah, very annoying. Um, what made you take another look at your book and decide that you wanted to rewrite it? Was there a prompt for that? Um, for the simple reason it took me originally a year to write. 
and I'd invested so much time and effort into it. And it wasn't a load of rubbish at the end of the day. It was just for its time, it was okay. But in comparison nowadays, the writing was probably quite amateur looking back on it. But I always had this, I've always had this passion for the 1960s, for the deep south of America. I love the blues, jazz, that sort of thing. And um, I just like the, <clears throat> the atmosphere it creates when you talk about the deep south and the heat and the humidity and the dust and whatever. And it just stuck with me. And I always wanted... I believed in this novel and always wanted to get it published. So I, I rewrote it and sent it off to about, I don't know, 30 publishers who all, all of them rejected it. This is not suitable. This is not for us. And clearly they've got a, they've got a business to run. And, uh, you know, they wanted something that could fly off the shelves and, you know, keep them in gin and tonics or whatever they needed at the time. So they all rejected it. And uh, so I self-published um, and then quickly found out that that was fine. But by God, do you have to do a lot of work to shift your book? And I was very, very green. I didn't know what the hell to do. And the competition out there is absolutely fierce. And the market is saturated completely with crime books. And I thought, Christ, have I done the right thing? But I had a passion for it and a belief. And I thought... This book really, really needs to be read by a couple of people to push it on. So how do I do that? Anyway, somebody, I got a few sales and somebody came back and said, oh, you know, you've made a mistake here and I made a mistake there. So I went through the process of re-editing three or four times. So that was back in 2017. And then I just absolutely believed in it. And then um, a few, I joined the U. UK CBC Crime Book Club. And a couple of people there, the administrators, Samantha Brownlee, Kath Middleton, Lucy Sampson, they read the book, hit it with five-star reviews straight away, told me that it needed a bit more editing. There's still some mistakes. After a while, you get word blind, you really do. So I did that, and uh, other people picked up on it. But you know, two or three dozen sales. It's not where I saw it going. And I thought, well, surely there's a publisher out there somewhere. And uh, eventually, you know, I just happened to write to Red Dragon, to dear old Conrad, because I saw him advertising on Facebook, you know, looking for authors. And I said, well, I, had, I've had an, I have other books self-published on Amazon. I said, here are the books. Um, they are this, this, and this. I didn't send him a synopsis, nothing. And uh, he wrote back and said, we've had a look, really like him. Oh, brilliant. If I send you a contract, would you be happy to sign with us? I said, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I did. And I've been under the wing of the delightful Emma Mitchell, <laughs> who... Uh, talks at a thousand miles an hour and I can barely understand her over the phone <laughs> with that very broad accent that she has but they have done a terrific job on the book with the cover I think I think honestly it looks when I compare it to the covers I generated they seem 10 year old amateur in comparison and so they've done a, a fantastic job with this book a long way from home is that an emmy ellis cover it is how did you guess <laughs> i know i know emmy's covers you yeah. can tell them a mile off yeah she's amazing but she made a fantastic job because that really the way this is that's a snowy egret on the front and that's featured in the book um, when they go into the swamps, the Okafenoki swamps in southern Georgia. Won't say too much, but uh, the, the snowy egret is has a little part in the story. And under here, under all the brushwood and everything, it's all red, so it looks like it's running with blood. And she's done a 
really, really superb job. Um, but when I saw that come to fruition, after all this time, I thought, you know, even if it doesn't sell that many copies, and I really hope it does for Conrad and, and, and Emma and the support they've given it so far, I really, really hope it does. But even if it doesn't, I'm proud of the fact that that book, somebody's liked it enough to want to publish it, put a new cover on it, give it some backing and spend some money on it. And that I will be eternally grateful because that's been a sort of pet project of mine, that book, for a long time. You know, um, do you want me to talk a little bit about the book or? Yeah, you go for it. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's basically set in the 19, well, 1961 in the deep south of Georgia in a fictitious small town near the Okefenokee Swamp. And um, it... Uh, President Kennedy's first year in office, and this kind of takes place in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Not that it's linked, but it's just that point in history. And uh, it involves an ex-Chicago homicide cop who lost his wife to a hit and run a few years before. And he has this very good friend, um, piano player up in Chicago that comes from down south originally. And his friend dies through a heart attack and they ship his body home. And he was always a good friend to him because when he sunk into the black hole of losing his wife in a hit and run, culprit never caught, um, this friend helped him out, you know, really looked after him. And uh, so this friend's sister, after he got buried back down south, um, rings Tom Bale, this Chicago cop, and says, uh, I want you to come and find my daughter. She's been missing now, this young black kid of about 12. And so he, no hesitation, drives a thousand miles south and goes into a land which he's never been into before. And it's the world of beyond from Chicago. This is slow moving. People don't like to talk. Secrets are really, really buried deep. Um, and he sets off to find that black girl. And it takes him into various situations down, you know, dead ends and talking to different people. And he makes friends and makes a lot of enemies. He gets beaten up a couple of times. But he gets a, a good friend in the local prosecutor and who plays a, a large part in that, in that story. And he has to go off into the swamp and try and find the girl. And he gets clues along the way. And there's a lot of blackmail. Fair old, there's a fair bit of murder going on. Um, and there are some really weird and funny characters in it. But I hope in 100,000 words that I've drawn them as complete characters, every single one of them. And uh, it's uh, people have said it's a very powerful novel and really takes you back in time and you can feel it and you know feel the heat and feel the dust and the swamps and everything and the way that he being a white man in a segregated environment he's shunned by a lot of the townsfolk but he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and being becoming annoying and making a lot of enemies and he gets where he needs to be with the help of some friends along the way uh, yeah, and there's courtroom scene in it if people like courtrooms stuff, which I do. Yeah, quite a powerful novel, I think. And it's had five star ratings from everybody who's read it, which is really lovely, including since Red Dragon have re released it. It's got a few more local people have bought it and reading it as well, which they hadn't done before. And so it's. There's a re-awareness of the book going on, and plus the fact I keep plugging it. But I've had my telling off from Emma uh, about social media marketing. Hadn't got a clue. <laughs> so we spent an hour on the phone one day saying, right, the book's been published. It's out there. It's been advertised. you got to do your bit. Get in there, like some people, follow some people, do this, do that, update Instagram, update Twitter, update Facebook, you know, get your face in there 
as much as you can in the book. So I've repeatedly tried to do that in the last couple of weeks by constantly plaguing Facebook and various other, you know, media platforms with the cover and what it's about. But that's the book. And uh, it's a bit different to your normal crime novel. Yeah, very mostly, you know, people don't read stuff from the from the deep south USA. But it's had also some positive results from or reviews from people in the US who know, it, despite the fact I've created a fictitious town and so on and so forth, they, they know the area. And although I've never been to the States, they say it's pretty accurate. And that's how it was. So I'm glad I've got that atmosphere and that location correct and so on and so forth. I'm very pleased with it. Really pleased with it. Good. I just need and you to read it now. It's my list. <laughs> um, and your promos work because I've seen it everywhere. And I apologise for not sharing it. Usually I'm pretty good, especially because I really um, think a lot of Red Dragon and Conrad and Emma. So yes. I want to support them as well. So, yeah, I mean, I must have just been tired or something. Busy. busy. Yeah, busy. Yeah. But they've been no, great. It's an oversight uh, on my part. I apologise. I should try hard. They have been great because they've taken on a long way from home and any subsequent novels, because I'm currently writing a follow-up featuring the same characters. And they've also taken on two of my other novels, which I'm happy to talk about if you are. I would talk about anything. Okay. Well, these are the old covers. I've had to remove them from Amazon because guess what? They're working on new covers and so on and so forth. But I'll show you the old covers. These stories are based on, are up to date, based in the UK and in Northamptonshire. And they're about a private detective who was an ex-police sergeant whose wife committed suicide after being, well, you can read about it. But he started his own private investigation agency and the first book was called The Tin Man. And on the front, you can hopefully see a maze. Yeah, that's yep. a crucial part of the story. Uh, these are not so long. These are just under 70,000 words, so they're a quicker read than the other one. But, yeah, he did, The Tin Man is all about this professional model who goes to seek out the character, the main private investigator called Simeon Kane. She goes to seek him out. She wants him to dive into what she considers is a, is a murder with a much deeper secret behind it than the police have given it for, from her father, who the police have written off as a violent mugging gone wrong. That was almost a year before. So nine and ten months later, she goes to see Simeon Kane and says, look, I don't believe that's all it was. There's something more behind this. I want you to investigate. And of course, he, he's still got a couple of friends in the police force. One very good friend who's a detective inspector. And although the DI, the detective inspector doesn't play a great role in it, he plays a crucial role in it. He's not in every page and things like that, because I wanted to focus on building the character of the private eye. Uh, anyway, let's just say that, yeah, there's murder. And yep, there's a couple more. And it tends to deal with, um, there's a bit of people trafficking going on in here, a bit of drugs being illegally, well, importation of drugs, via clandestine channels and I don't know what else I can tell you uh, without giving too much away but he becomes Simeon Kane becomes quite a celebrity when he solves the puzzle and and I know authors say this but you will not see the twist coming in this I absolutely guarantee it but it makes perfect sense when it happens. It's one of those, where did that come from? That seems a bit weird. It's not, well, it's not one of those. 
This is, where did that come from? Oh my God, yes, moments. But awesome. uh, yeah, so Simeon Cain, the Tin Man, and the Tin Man is all about a chap who actually lives in the Dustin area of Northampton. This is a real chap. It's the only element of reality in this book. Again, I've created fictitious towns so I can be creative with locations and things like that and not have everybody write to me and say, that street doesn't exist, you know, and so on and so forth. But the Tin Man is a place in Northampton called Dustin, and it's quite, it's near, um, shall we say, a psychiatric hospital, and, you know, and some of the patients who aren't too seriously ill, they sometimes go out and have a little walk on their own and they go to the little shop in the little precinct and all that sort of stuff. But there's one guy there who um, suffers severe learning difficulties and he's autistic and whatever the correct term is. And he goes into the little woodland, not far from the, where this guy was killed and uh, he sits on a big tree, a massive, massive oak tree that's fallen down from a lightning strike. And he drinks beer and eats chocolate. And there's thousands of beer cans around him stuffed into the big cracks in the tree and everything. And that is actual because I've seen them. And he's nicknamed the Tin Man. And when Simeon Kane goes to see him, and finds out about him, he approaches him and talks to him, and he gives him a few vital clues that set Simeon Kane on the right path. So I thought I'd call it the Tin Man, so it's a bit different from normal. So that's that one. Anyway, yeah. There we go. And the maze plays a hell of a part in it, trust me. Now, my follow-on from that is called Dirty Money which came out last year. And uh, so that's P.I. Simeon Kane mystery number two. And in this case, um, Simeon Kane, he, he works in this office. And in these office, suite of offices, there is a solicitor who passes him lots of, you know, go find this person who's inherited this lot of money type of work. And he does in this particular case. But it's a low-life criminal that Simeon Kane used to deal with when he was a copper 10 years before. And he goes off in search of this guy, thinking, Christ almighty, this guy was a druggie. He was always in fights. He always did this, did that. And uh, so he goes off and finds him because this guy's inherited a lot of money from a, a guy he never knew about, his paternal grandfather, which he because he was adopted in an early age and he didn't know this guy. So he finds him, and at the same time, when he takes him back to the office to see the solicitor, he, up to that point, has found out some information about this guy and some illegal gambling rings that are going on and that he might be part of it. Well, that aside, he takes him back to his office and the guy in turn says, well, I'm really worried about my sister, who I've not seen in weeks and weeks now. Could you find her for me? So he finds this guy and then turn, this guy asks him to find his sister. And she is a high-class hooker and has completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Can't be traced on Facebook, nowhere. You know, she's got no social hits, social media history, nothing. So he sets off and that leads him down a path of really nasty things going on and criminals doing horrible, horrible stuff and money laundering. Uh, yeah, this one's a lot more brutal than the Tin Man. It's a bit deeper. It's a bit darker. Uh, it says on here, deeper the secret, the darker the heart. And that's very true. And, uh, yeah, these have both gotten great reviews on Amazon in their old formats. Uh, which is really, really nice of people. And it's really great that Red Dragon Publishing, Publishing have decided to take them on board. And uh, the Tin Man should be out sometime in July. 
by the time they've rewritten it for me. <laughs> no, by the time it's got a new cover and whatever. And this should follow on um, probably end of August into September. And I'm currently working on a third follow-up, which is called House of Glass. And I'm about 25,000 words into that. And that's moving along quite nicely. I've just got to fit a few things together and, you know, increase the word count a little bit and, and make it even more sinister and darker and deeper than the previous two. So they've taken that on as well, which is really lovely. So I'm very, very excited about that. So unfortunately, those two books you can't buy on Amazon at the moment because they've been taken off, quite obviously. A long way from home, you can. But if you go down in the woods today, no, seriously, if you search under my name, Brian W. Caves, you will find some novellas and short stories that are still available on Amazon. There's this one called The Burning Man, which is about, yeah, it's 110 pages. And it's about two friends in the deep south who get mixed up with the mob and, and their drug <coughs> uh, problems and so on and so forth and decide to try and make a little bit of money on the side, hoping the mob won't uh, find out. Well, guess what? This is brutal. People have said who have reviewed this, who loved it, said it's, it's real hard crime. It's brutal in places. But a great, fast story, you know, uh, The Burning Man. Um, there's Consequences, which is four short stories, again, all set in America. And they are all with a twist in the tale. And it's as the word, as the title says, Consequences is what happens to you when you do something stupid. And so that's available. And there's this one. You probably can't see I am what I am. That was my first route into horror writing. And this is about a hired assassin who's gone to meet a beautiful girl in a hotel, a woman who's going to broker an illegal arms deal. He's been hired to kill her. But <laughs> as it says on the back, it says two nights in a luxury hotel with her and everything changes. Falling in love means starting a new life, which is far more terrifying and beautiful than anything the assassin could have ever imagined. It's about vampires. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so if you like about vampires, that's a good one. And again, this pulls no punches. It's very, very brutal in places, and it's not a YA book. This is an 18-plus book. Mm -hmm. Um, but it has some very strong political and religious views in it, which might put some people off. But what I was trying to create with this is the main character, the main character in this, the assassin before he gets converted, is trying to create what would go through his mind once he found out what life was truly like as a vampire. So his political and religious views are probably somewhat a bit strong and not necessarily in the right flavour. But if anybody wants to read it, I am what I am. And I've written another horror book with three short stories in it called At The End, a copy of which I don't seem to have for some reason. It's a, I always wanted to write a haunted house mystery. So that's in there. Always wanted to write someone getting stuck deep in the forest and there's monsters. So that's in there. And I've always wanted to write something about the reality between mental illness and horror and how sometimes in someone's mind, the two just mesh together like that through paranoia, psychosis or whatever. And I've got quite a bit of experience with that stuff mainly through my daughter who has type one bipolar, bless her, which is managed and managed well with medication, but she is a absolute knowledge book on this stuff. 
and uh, I've had to live and support her, live with and support her with her her illness. And um, she has taught me a lot about that. So I wanted to write a horror story uh, called Mind Games, which is, is it horror? Is it his head? Is it his illness? What is it that's happening to him? And I wanted to kind of leave it open-ended. So there's that one, which is called At the End. So that's kind of me, but I'm kind of writing ideas all the time, really. And as I say, working on a follow-up to my Simeon Kane novels and a follow-up to A Long Way From Home. Um, yeah. And holding down a daytime job. <laughs> busy, busy. Always, always difficult. Um, when writing your books, what's the most interesting thing you found doing research or what's the biggest research hole you've fallen down? Biggest research hole? Rabbit uh, hole, yeah. Big rabbit hole. In a good way or a bad way? It's up to you. Okay. I ask the question, you answer it. <laughs> <Would> you <laughs> I would say the most fun I've had researching is for A Long Way From Home. Because I have never been to the States, I have had to do a massive amount of research for the location, the Okefenokee Swamp, the surrounding towns, although they're fictitious in my book, they could be loosely based on real ones. Um, and I've had to get a lot of research, the culture, what it was like in the 60s, how the black and white segregation was working and so on and so forth. That was a lot of fun. And at the same time, when I was really going into the research about how the black people were treated, it was bloody heartbreaking. It really, really was. I mean, Georgia had a dreadful reputation, dreadful reputation of illegal lynchings and things like that. I mean, and there's a few elements of actual history, which I've mentioned in the book uh, as reference points to give, to give a driver for the main character, the ex-Chicago homicide cop, to drive him forward to help this black family who live out in the swamps and find their daughter and other girls that have gone missing. And it was important for me to find out all about that so I could have that included in the story so that would be a really forceful driver for motivator for him to want to see justice that was probably the most fun but also the saddest bit of research i've done and because uh, i also had to research chicago as well where he lived and why i chose chicago don't ask me i just wanted him to be a long way from home and he was a thousand miles. But yeah, so I had to get the towns on the route down, how long it'd take him. And it, yeah, it, it was really, really good fun. And it took a long time. As for the rest of them, the research is fairly minimal. Uh, my main focus is character. Plot is secondary to me. Character and situation is everything. Vampires, I didn't have to research because there's nobody real you can actually talk to about it. But, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, character and situation is everything. And because I live in rural Northamptonshire, you know, it doesn't take very much to say, oh, I'll use that, I'll use that, I know what that is. Um, but, yeah, the, a long way from home took a fair old bit. If you were to choose one of your characters to take out for a meal, who would you choose and what would you ask them? Uh, <laughs> interesting. What would I ask them? Which character? Yeah. There's a guy in A Long Way From Home. There's an old black guy who's ancient. He sits outside this storefront drinking a Dr. Pepper when this, when the main character, the detective, comes along, sits down next to him, and the heat is pushing down on them. 
And this black guy starts to tell him stories, true stories, actually, dug out the history books. And, you know, I'd like to take that black guy to lunch. And I'd like to learn something from him. Uh, you know, I won't tell you what happens to him in the book, but I'd like to learn something from him. I think given, well, of course, I, I say this about a fictitious character because it's how I've created him. But I like the way he talks and I like the way he relates his stories in the book. And he's a bit like your old granddad sitting on a porch and telling you how big the fish were he caught years ago in the river. He's that kind of guy. And I'd just like to sit and have a chat with him. Which of your characters gave you most trouble? Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. The most trouble. Again, probably going back to a long way from home. Uh, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a character in it called Donald Duck Averley. Who was, <laughs> who was shot in the backside in the, in the Korean War. And he walks like a duck. He waddles because of the scar tissue and the pain and everything. But he's off his face on booze most of the time. And he sits there with a, an old rifle, he sits there on his deck chair in his front garden, which is just run to right with weeds. There's barbed wire fencing all over the place. And um, he's just, and he occasionally displays his genitalia to anybody who walks past. And the kids run past, quack it, making quacking noises and things. He, he was difficult because I had to get some background for the Korean War. And I had to get the, the right gauge and type of... What the hell was that? <laughs> My mum's working in the kitchen. Oh, right. Um, you know, I had to get the right rifle, the carbine, the, the bore measurement, that sort of stuff. Um, but he was difficult because I, I, I wanted to make a character that was a bit the local crazy guy. Yeah. Um, he is it, but he really does impart some sensible information underneath all his crazy ramblings when he's talking to this detective he was actually quite difficult to write he really was difficult to write and pin down until i was very very happy with him and although he doesn't feature greatly in the book he he was a challenge mm -hmm. he was indeed so the book has everything humor you know nudity there's even a bit of romance in it <laughs> Um, if you were to be a fictional killer in a book, how would you kill your victims? Oh, fictional killer. Well, firstly, they would have to deserve it. There's no question about it. And depending on what they've done, I think I could happily torture somebody in the meanest and most horrible way. Especially if they hurt an animal. They can do anything to anybody else. I don't give a toss. To an animal, no. Um, I would make it very, very slow. And I would use whatever came to hand. Uh, or I'd become a vampire and do it that way. Because <laughs> I, I quite like the idea of being a vampire. Especially this guy <laughs> in this book. He, he gets... He, he does all right. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> Blood everywhere, but he does all right. See, I think this is the most honest and open answer yet. Everyone's like, oh, I don't know. I've never thought about it. Like, you liars. <laughs> you liars. Yeah, I'll I'd... do it from a distance. You're like, nope, I'm going to torture them. Like, yep. Yes. <laughs> I'll torture them. I'll torture anybody that harms an animal. I really would. I'd take a baseball bat to them and I'd beat them slowly to death. So they felt every bit of pain possible. I could do that. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs>
Um, okay, so if you were fictionally murdered, who would you want to solve your case? Oh, solve it. It would probably be, yeah, Simeon Kane, I think. The, the, UK, the British private eye. I think he would do it. Him and his best friend, the DI in the local police force. Between the two of them, they could solve anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Simeon Kane's a good guy. He's a really, really good guy. Yeah. When you're editing or when Emma shouts at you for overusing words, what are the most overused words or phrases? So far, she hasn't. What she's done, she's taken my existing work. And when she came back, having looked at A Long Way From Home, she said, I don't want to change anything. She said, but. <laughs> <laughs> she said, there are a couple of instances where there's still a spelling mistake. And, you know, you use a lot of long sentences. You need to cut them short. So instead of a comma here, put a full stop, start a new sentence, <laughs> make it work that way. And she did that, not a lot, but by God, did it sharpen up, sharpen up the story. It really worked. So it's, it's long sentences. I've got a habit of this. And I've just got to be careful. But so far, you know, she didn't change a thing. She loved it. In fact, I think, what was her comment, Conrad? <laughs> She read the first few pages of A Long Way From Home and cried after it and then insisted, we've got to sign this guy. I think, I think that's what she said, which I think is really lovely. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, if you were able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Ooh. Yeah, now... Hmm. Several come to mind, but I would like, yeah. I'm going to hark back to noir crime from the US, you know, the Chandlers, the Ross McDonald's of this world and whatever. But my favourite out of all of them is James M. Kane, who wrote, this postman always rings twice, Mildred Pierce, you know, double indemnity and so on and so forth. I'd like to know how he can cram 3D characters, a complete story. I mean, a complete story in 120 pages. Because that takes quite a bit to do. Because in a lot of books, you get a lot of fluff. And embellishments. I'm sure you've read yourself, you know, good books, bad books, indifferent books. You know, you, you think to yourself, well, Christ Almighty, you're going to cut a hundred pages out of that, and it would still be a fantastic story. Because there's a lot of padding sometimes, I think. But he to me was just the absolute master of the of the novella and creating a brilliant, full and complete story with complete characters. I, I just love him, and I'd love to tap into his mind and find out just how the hell he did it. You know, because although I, I write novellas, yeah, and I think I've created complete stories, they're just nothing like his. Nothing like his at all. So that would be my choice, either him or Stephen King. I'm a big Stephen King fan, so, yeah. You like yeah. Stephen King? Oh, yeah. 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 I saw him at Bloody Scotland last year. I paid for him. He's on the screen, but it was awesome. Yeah. It's yeah, just yeah, I love Stephen King. Yeah, I I I've watched loads of YouTube <laughs> videos on him, you know, and it, it always cracks me up with some of the things <laughs> he says is you know, like plot. Why spoil a good story with plot and things like that? You know, characterization, situation, or everything. You know, um, I, I, he just hits all the right buttons with me. He's written some howlers, in my opinion, but he's written some damn fantastic stories. 
one of my favourite is Salem's Lot, I think. Salem's Lot, I just love that. It, it, to date, is the only book I can think of that's actually scared me. Because normally they don't. I don't feel much emotion when I read books or watch films. But that, that book and the creaky film that was made, have you ever seen it, Salem's Lot? The, the miniseries or the film? Yeah, no, it, stars, it stars David Soul. Have you read the book, Salem's Lot? About the vampires? I think, yeah, I think so, yeah. One of his early nice. books after Carrie. Um, it's, <laughs> David Soul was in, uh, he from Starsky and Hutch fame, was in the, was in the series film, and uh, he does really well. And he's creepy as hell. Creepy as hell. Forget all the modern movies, all the CGI and the blood and everything. This is real, real dark, murky, creepy stuff that makes you jump. Still the scariest movie I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I am... Um... One of my favourite Stephen King books is 112263. Um, oh, oh that, was, that, was that him or Joe Hill, his son? That was him. That was him, 112263, yeah. about John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And then the book that makes me sob every time is The Green Mile by Miles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, a fabulous story. Yeah, brilliant. And brilliantly made into a film as well. I yes. think one of the best. It was indeed. It was indeed. Yeah, that's... Like some of his books, some of the films that have been made from his books are howlers, but they're but on the complete off the end of the scale in the other direction, you know, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, and those oh, astonishing, astonishing films, really are. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, I saw him at Bloody Scotland last year and he was talking to Linwood Barkley. Oh, Linwood Barkley, yeah, I have all of yeah, his too. Two huge authors, and um. They were comparing toilet stories, as you do, in front of a, you know, a crowd of massive book fans, and they were bored yeah. past because it was a hybrid festival. So, yeah, because um, yeah, Linwood Barkley used to work in a, a trailer park, and I think Stephen King did for a while after school, oh, right, or okay. something. So yeah, it was very amusing. <laughs> I just <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Bloody hell! Yeah, I'd yeah. love to actually uh, be a. a, a an observer in the audience to to one of his chats as opposed to looking at it through youtube but there we go yeah it was yeah uh, it uh, sold it for me to go all the way obviously you know where i live so scotland yeah. was quite a trek quite <laughs> a trek quite yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah like took most of the day on the train to go there it was so worth it yeah i can imagine yeah yeah um will you be seen at any of the festivals this summer well, again, you're talking to somebody who hasn't got a clue what they're doing, what he should be doing if he does go. Um, I, I don't know whether I should go just as an observer to look around and say hi to people or whether I should go there to try and tout my books. I don't know. I really don't know. I've not even thought about it. So maybe some good advice from someone would be useful, but they would have to allow me to bring my dog because he will not let me out of his sight because he, he, let's just put it this way, it's to hear a dog crying is one of the saddest sounds on this planet. And he cries and wails if I'm not around. So it makes life very difficult, but it's worth it to look after him. Yeah. So you could go to Harrogate because that's the biggest one by miles. Right. And for a day, and they have an outside beer tent where everyone mixes. So okay. you could meet everybody and you could still have the dog. And then you could probably try and tout your books and they're just authors everywhere. It's insane. But amazing. All right. Okay. When's Harrogate again? Uh, end of July 21st, I think. Yeah. End of July. I could look it up. It's no problem. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to most of them, so they will get confused for me. Okay. Yeah. So the trick is go there and introduce yourself and talk about your books, but don't take thousands of copies with you. Because no, yeah, well, wanna... you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to anyway, because <laughs> you just get, I'll make 
But yeah, there's some big names. Who's going this year? There's lots of female American authors, like I think Tesh Gerritsen and Kathy Wrights, I think, are both going this year. Oh, okay. Um, and obviously, Sir Ian Rankin will be there. Yes. Yeah, and Mark Billingham and all the Mike Craven. Mike Craven, yeah. yeah. Mike Craven gets everywhere. <laughs> um, Imran Mahmood, Abby Mukherjee, and authors like that. There's loads and loads, and randomly Reverend Richard Coles and Frank Boyle. Oh yes, because um, Richard Coles has just released a book, hasn't he? Or some yeah. time ago. He's going to be on the same panel as Graham Bartlett. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Excellent. So, yeah, Harrogate's awesome. I I'll just shout about Harrogate all the time because I, I loved it. I only went for the first time last year. Okay. And no one knows what they're doing, except for, you know, Ian Rankin and Mark Bennett and go all the time. Um, everyone else is just wandering around in kind of a daze. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get drunk as well to add to the fun. But no, it's great. It's good fun. <laughs> and then we just go around trying to get selfies with authors while trying to overcome massive shyness. And then the authors are trying to overcome massive shyness because they used to be in lots of way in a room on their own writing. It's, yep. Yeah, it's just putting loads of awkward people together and giving them <laughs> alcohol and going, here you go, good luck. <laughs> Sounds like fun to me. Yeah, exactly. What more could you ask for? <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll consider that. Yeah, Harrogate. Okay. I will nag. I nag all of the authors I speak to. Okay. <laughs> and I don't just nag like now in person. I will message you and say, have you booked yet? Or are you going? Oh. Oh, I could blimey. do this on a daily basis. It's no problem. You know, I'm busy, <laughs> but I can squeeze in a nagging message in. Is that right? Ask um, anyone that I speak to. Okay. I have a oh, list maybe, I could give you. Maybe I should turn my laptop and phone off. I'll find a way. You're not that far <laughs> from me, actually. I know roughly where you live. I'd come to your house. <laughs> I have no shame. <laughs> Knock on the door, yeah. Oi. <laughs> Mark Tilbury, who is now one of your fellow dragons, yes. lives in Cumbria. And oh, yes. He calls his fans his twisted Annies. Okay. Um, the Annie Wilkes in Misery. Obviously. Yep. Um, he lives in Cumbria, and yet he remains petrified that we're going to go up to Cumbria and hobble him. It's and so again, far. you know how far Cumbria is from here. It's, well, it's, a, it's a fair way. Yeah, it's yeah. a fair way. And yet, you know, and I'm like, Cumbria's miles away. Like, I can't be asked to come up and hobble. You just keep writing. Like, just, you know... But I will if I have to, because I, I have his address. I will come turn up on your doorstep if I have to. It's like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm still writing, I'm writing, it's fine. <laughs> oh, bloody hell, Mark, poor you, there's no escape. But <laughs> I have the image of his book tattooed on my arm, so. That's the, which book is that? Abattoir of Dreams. Abattoir of Dreams, that's it. Yeah. Which, which is I, phenomenal. I still haven't read it. See, if list. I read if I read your book, you have to read Abattoir. Oh, I will definitely. You have to. Like, I'm telling you now that you do. Okay. Right. I'll make a note of that. Do I'm not. Tech. Do not upset. Donna. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I will nag for that as well. Okay. I'll send you one message in the morning saying, "Are you going to Harrogate?" And then one in the evening saying, "Have you read Abattoir yet?" Oh, every God. day my life has every changed. day my life has changed immeasurably in the space of 30 seconds yeah well just your own fault you asked me for this i didn't ask you <laughs> <laughs> you've only this... yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. oh god <laughs> <laughs> i can even get conrad me and conrad are good friends as well so i can even get him and emma we, we know each other okay all right yeah but thankfully, they live quite a ways away, don't they? So I've got time to run away. <laughs> You've got time to run away. It takes Buddy an hour to get between two junctures of the M1 from where you live. So This is true. It's yeah, so you're fine. You know, and I do actually have stuff to do occasionally. Okay. You stick with it. <laughs> I can still nag by message, though. That's yeah. fine. I always find time for that. I will look forward to them. <laughs> Um, 
if you were able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you go? Back to, I think I'd go back to 1960s America. That's what I'd do with all the great cars and, you know, the juke joints and the yeah, ice cream parlours and so on and so forth. And I'd also like to go back to that time to the old juke joints in the deep south and listen to some of the old blues musicians play and the old bands and things like that. That's what I'd do. I'd like to go back to the 60s. I know it's a terrible time in America's history for racism and things like that, but i tell you the truth, not much has changed since. But uh, I would like to go back to that time. I really would. I love the 60s. I don't dress like the 60s, by the way, or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not that obsessive. But it's just a time that I just really like. Um, although I didn't see much of it when I was growing up because, you know, I was just a few years old in the 60s, although I did <clears throat> watch Man Land on the Moon and all that sort of stuff, in theory. <laughs> oh, conspiracy. Um, <laughs> no, let's not start that one off. But yeah, the sixties would the sixties would be good. The world was changing a lot in the sixties, and uh, I'd like to be more aware of it. As an, if I could go back as an adult in the sixties, I would be far more aware of what's going on than just a ten-year-old kid or whatever, you know. And that's so weird because if I was if I was asked that question, my answer would be the eighties, and for exactly the same reasons, right? Mostly because of music. Oh, yeah, yeah there's no it. question. 80s was a phenomenal time for music. Uh, it really, really was. I mean, the 70s and the 80s and creeping into the 90s. I, I mean, it takes me back to Van Halen and Jump when that came out. That was in the 80s. Some astonishing stuff. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That was in the 80s. wasn't it? one of my best sort of dance disco tracks of all time. I love that. I love funk, you know, and hard funk. There's a lot going on. Tremendous time for music. Yeah, some of my favourite ever songs came out in the year I was born. <laughs> oh, yeah? Um, and, yeah, obviously, like, the height of Queen, Michael Jackson, but I never got to see Freddie Mercury died when I was eight, I think. So, right. you know, yeah. just, yeah, I never got to experience the, the height of those people. So, yeah, I'd love, love to go back. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Wow, yeah, that's a good part, good part of time that really is. Yeah. Um where's the strangest or funniest place you've ever woken up? Well, hmm, that's a bit off the wall. Didn't expect that one. I've ever woken up. <laughs> See, this is why I asked if you'd watched my interviews. <laughs> Um, when you said you watched the old ones, I'm like, yep, he's not going to be expecting that one. No, he wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> the strangest place I've ever woken up. Uh, woken up unexpectedly, you mean? You know, well, you know. yes. Like I say, I asked the question, you answer it. It's up to you. I love this because I can see everyone filtering. Going, nope, can't tell that one. Can't tell that one. Yeah. I was drunk and naked. I probably can't tell that one. Well... <laughs> There have been a few instances. <laughs> I, uh, years ago, I, uh, myself and my wife at the time, uh, we, her, one of her uncles um, had a yacht and it was moored down off West Mercia. And uh, we were on it for a week. He wasn't there. Um, not that we were allowed to take it out to sea, we were not. But we could go on the yacht, drink all the booze on there, do what you like. And uh, one morning I, after a particularly heavy night, I woke up and I and I really had no recollection of why I was there. And it felt absolutely weird. It really did. And I thought, what, what am I doing with this? I must have had a lot to drink. <laughs> and that was, our, that was our first night there. And I couldn't understand why I was there. 
that that was weird. But there's not much of a story around that. But it it felt weird at the time. Um, I've woken I've woken up in someone's hallway in their house in the past, wondering how the hell did I get here? Because I'd been to a party, but it wasn't at that house. And uh, I've woken up. In a hotel room, uh, once having had, we were, it was a Christmas party and a company I worked for at the time, we had our party in this hotel along with a few other. And um, I remember waking up in this hotel room on the toilet in the bathroom at four o'clock in the morning. Naked. And it wasn't my hotel room. So I really, really don't don't know how I got in there. But that's about it. Without going into too much detail, that is about it. See, why when men are naked do they or why when, when men are drunk do they get naked? Women don't do this. <laughs> it's it's an odd one, I'll grant you. <laughs> but it's something in our DNA. It really is. It's something in our DNA. But women, you know, you're, you're a funny lot because, believe it or not, in the past when I've played, when I've been playing live with various bands, and particularly when I was fronting my own bands, there have been a couple of times when, yes, I have had underwear thrown at me and have been invited for a weekend away in a tent in Wales, of all places. <laughs> Why? I do not know it was Wales, but she invited me. Yeah, and oh yeah. No, I better not go down that route. <laughs> I better not go down that route at all. <laughs> yes, uh, that's as much as I'm going to say on the matter. Um, oh, blimey, nearly slipped up there. I am divorced, but I don't want people to know what happened in my murky past. Uh, I've been divorced for a number of years now, nearly 15. So quite a long time to be on your own. Yes. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Men do get naked. It is a strange thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I have proof, like, of doing these interviews. The amount of times I ask that question and it involves nakedness and alcohol. Yeah. It's quite common. It, it, it is. I guess it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, but somebody else's bedroom in a hotel, and I'm thinking, in a piss state, thinking, this is not my room. What am I doing in here? And nobody else being in the room either. That's the crazy thing. How did I get in there? No idea. No idea at all. But somebody must have let me in. Yeah, and left you there, which is yeah, yeah. weird. Yeah. Very strange. And to this day, I still don't know. <laughs> Although the guy I was supposed to share the room with, one of my colleagues, because we all had, there was 10 of us in this company and we all had double rooms and single beds. And my mate and my colleague, Chris, said to me later on that morning, where the hell did you get to? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, mate. He said, I last saw you walking towards the lift. Okay. I don't even remember that. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you may be relieved to know I don't have any more questions for you. I'm not going to okay. get any more of your deepest, darkest secrets out. Okay. That's no this, problem. This time. This time. In July, when you come back for your next book, then I'll get some more out of you. Okay. Yeah, that'll be a pleasure. Look forward to it. And the re-release of The Tin Man and Dirty Money with new covers and things like that. Yes, I should uh, look forward to seeing those and reading yeah. them. They sound awesome. And hopefully by then I would have read your book and you would have read Abattoir. And we'll be yes. talking about going to Harrogate. All those things and more. Exactly. Well, See? Sorted. Are on yeah, I've forgotten already. You've forgotten, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> are already on my to-do list. 
Yes. <laughs> so show off your book again and tell everyone where they can find out more about you if they would like to and where they can get your book from. Right. A long way from home. Uh, on Amazon. Red Dragon Publishing. Um, what else do, we, do you need from me? Where people can find you, where they can stalk you properly. Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> or they can I, message you if they like your book, I guess, is the normal answer to that. <laughs> well, I have a, an author page on Amazon. I have Facebook, at Brian underscore Caves, I think it is. I'll just check. No, it's at BW Caves. Um, <laughs> I publish under Brian W Caves, even though I've got two Facebook pages, one under Brian W Caves for my books and, under, and another one, Brian Caves, which is my normal sort of uh, thing. And people can message me. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on I'm recently on Instagram. Thank you, Emma, for nagging me. And <laughs> on Twitter as well. And I'm also a member of the UK CBC Book Club. So, you know, that's 21,000 members, a lot of whom I'm sure come to your Facebook page and chat and all that sort of stuff. So a long way from home, story about the Deep South, murders, intrigue, blackmail, deep secrets, courtroom scene, a touch of romance, a little bit of voodoo. I've got to mention that. Jazz and blues thrown in for good measure in the swamps of Southern America. Cracking, re cracking read, I think. I give it I give it five stars, personally. <laughs> but you're very modest, so it's all good. <laughs> I am very modest, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, Donna. Thank you so much for your time.